Hidden beyond the human eye exists the unseen, a realm of spiritual forces squaring off in the supernatural, forces of cosmic power and proportion. And while the world spins, suspecting nothing, the enemy is on the move. His schemes finding footing in the familiar, his traps set in everyday episodes. So be prepared and ready to leave it all on the line. This is a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all the forces of evil and darkness. And they won't go down without a fight. I want to tell you a story about a young couple, 29 years of age, and they quit their jobs so that they could take a year and bicycle around the world. Can you imagine? His name was Jay Austin. Her name was Lauren Gagan. And they left their jobs behind and began their great adventure. When they got to Morocco, Jay had this epiphany. It was powerful. And he wanted to share it with everybody on social media. Let's read what he said. He said, you watch the news, you read the papers, and you're led to believe that the world is a big, scary place. People, the narrative goes, are not to be trusted. People are evil. I don't buy it. Evil is a make-believe concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of fellow humans holding values and beliefs and perspectives different than our own. It's easier to dismiss an opinion as abhorrent than strive to try and understand it. Badness exists, sure, but even that's quite rare. By and large, humans are kind, self-interested sometimes, myopic sometimes, but kind, generous, wonderful and kind. No greater revelation has come from our journey than this. And here's a picture of the young couple, Jay and Lauren, with their great epiphany, continued on their journey, and suddenly that great awareness, that great aha, was destroyed. You see, when Jay and Lauren got to the border of Afghanistan, they were attacked and stabbed to death by terrorists. It is presumed the terrorists were ISIS. It's a tragic end. It's a sad end. I wish that evil wasn't real, but we know it's real. We see it, we feel it, we hear it, not just out there. We're kind of aware of it in our own lives as well, aren't we? Jesus put it like this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, for from within, out of a person's heart, come evil, and then he says, thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are, he says, what defile you. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, you know, the world hates me because I point out its evil. There is evil in this world. There is evil all around us. Where did it come from? Like, were we created to be evil? Is evil really real? In his book, Evil and the Justice of God, N.T. Wright tells about a famous psychiatrist 
and uh, his name is M. Scott Peck. Now, Peck grew up as an agnostic. Not only that, but uh, he was also trained in the tradition that we lived in a closed universe. That is, there are no such things as outside forces. We're just all a bunch of matter and chemistry put together, and we live and we die, and that's the end of us. But what's interesting is that about the time that Peck became a Christian, he had begun to notice in his practice some things that he could not explain any other way except for an outside force. He said, you know, I deal with some patients, persons, and their families, and there's no way I can just simply say, oh, their problem is mental illness. In fact, he wrote a book, People of the Lie, in which he shares his new perspective that was highly unpopular. He said, you know, there are outside forces, supra-personal, supra-human, that do control individuals, peoples, and even sometimes whole societies. I want to welcome you to our brand new sermon series. We're calling it The Rise of the Evil Empire. This entire fall, we're going to be looking at spiritual warfare for lots of different reasons. We haven't talked about it for a while. And secondly, I am getting so many questions People ask me what is going on right now around the world with all of the chaos and all of the confusion and all of the evil that is taking place. And so I thought, you know, we need to look to God and ask God what is going on around us. So the first part of our series is going to be a pulling back of the curtain, so to speak, and looking into the unseen world and trying to understand where evil has come from and how evil works. It's important that we do that. I came across a saying by a famous uh, ancient Chinese general, Sun Tzu, and he said this. He said, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not your enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. So we're going to expose the enemy and you know, when you do that, the enemy does not like that. Because when the enemy is exposed to the truth, to the light of Christ, we begin to see his vulnerabilities and he becomes weak. So I want to ask you to please be praying for me and for our leaders and our staff and our families and for our church that God would protect us during this time. Because after we're done with this first part of the series, then we're going to move into really how to defend ourselves and how to have victory over the attack of the evil one in this thing called spiritual warfare. Now, a couple of things about this weekend's message, because it's going to be very different than what I normally preach and what you might be used to. I'm going to do more of a narrative form. In other words, I want to tell you the big story of evil, because I want you to get the big story in your mind. I don't want you to get hung up on the details, because I'm going to be sharing with you some verses that are very controversial, Verses that are rarely looked at, and we don't teach on them very often, and I understand why, because, well, scholars interpret them in different ways, and they're just odd and peculiar, and sometimes we find a lame way to interpret them because we don't want to deal with the tension they create. Well, we're going to meet them head on, and I want to deal with them very literally. 
I'm also going to be relying on a scholar. His name is Dr. Michael Heisner, and uh, he has written quite a bit about this. He is an expert in the ancient languages and has dealt with this topic, and so I have found him very helpful. If you're familiar with him, then some of the things I'm saying from uh, Dr. Heiser will be very familiar to you as well. Last but not least, I'm thankful for the Bible Project because I'm using their artwork. I thought you should be subjected to something a little better than what I'm able to produce. So here we go. <sighs> Deep breath, right? Really interesting but strange topic. Let's get started. And the best place to start is always in the beginning. You know, in the beginning, God already was. That's because God has always been. He has no beginning. He has no end. He exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct personalities, one divine essence. But when we crack open our Bibles and we turn open to those first few pages of Genesis, oftentimes we get this picture that in the beginning, well, there was God. Well, let uh, the Bible Project symbol for God, we'll use that, all right? And then there was the human pair that God created together. But when we examine the scriptures carefully, we discover that before God ever made the human pair, human beings, God did something else. God had created all these supernatural, divine beings in what we think of as, as the heavenly realm. Think of them as God's heavenly family. The cherubim, the seraphim, sons of God, various angels and creatures that are described throughout the Bible, mysterious and hard to understand, nonetheless very real. You know, Paul has something to say about them. This is what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1. He said, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Paul wants us to understand this. Christ is not a created being. He has always been. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. So two realms, heaven and earth. He made the things that we can see, right? But watch this. And the things that we cannot see, such as... Okay, and so these are things that we cannot see. Thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. So Paul tells us, look, there are two realms. Not only did God create everything that you see in this earthly realm, but God created the heavenly realm, and in the heavenly realm, these beings have hierarchy, have status, have kingdoms, have power. Wow. And all of that's going to play into this whole idea of spiritual warfare and a verse that we're going to look at the, at the very end of the message, which will springboard our entire series as we move forward. So the angelic beings... All right, these beings, these powers that God created were present when God created the earth and the human pair. Now, in the book of Job, God gives us kind of a picture of what it was like when he created the rest of us. Watch this, Job chapter 38, it says, God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Now watch this. When the morning stars, 
sang. Well, we know stars can't sing, so morning stars is a metaphor. It's a, it's a symbol for these, these uh, divine beings that God created. For when the morning stars sang together, and all, look at this, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, I want you to remember this phrase, sons of God, because we're going to come back to it in just, uh, just a, a couple of minutes, and we're going to talk about that together, all right? But let's, let's talk a little bit about the two realms as we get started. The first realm we're going to call the heavenly realm, okay? And the second realm that we hear described is the earthly realm. Now, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm intersect with each other. And so we see this intersection. And this intersection is what we oftentimes refer to in the Bible as Eden. As Eden. Eden is that meeting place. It is like God's headquarters. It is the place where you have humanity intersecting with the divine being. It's where God's heavenly family, we could say, and God's earthly family kind of mesh, kind of meet. It's God's headquarters. Eden. Now, when I say Eden to you, what comes to your mind? What comes to my mind is a garden, the Garden of Eden. But did you know that the Garden of Eden is also a mountain? That takes us to one of those peculiar passages I was telling you about earlier, found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. It starts as a polemic against the king of Tyre, who is a wicked, prideful, evil man. But then the prophet moves away from the physical king of Tyre to a spiritual being, like the mother of all pride and the mother of all evil. And he's talking about Lucifer. He's talking about the devil, about Satan. But I want you to catch what he has to say about Eden. Watch this. Here we go. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, Red carnelian, pale green peridot, white moonstone, blue green beryl, onyx, green jasper, and my favorite, blue lapis lazuli, because it's just fun to say, turquoise and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. He goes on and he says, They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. Wow. I mean, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him in the scriptures, was this incredible supernatural being that God created. And by the way, in the book of Genesis, in the very beginning, it says that God when he was done creating everything that he did, looked at it all and saw that it was good. So up to a certain point, all that God created was good. Now remember earlier in Job, I said, I want you to remember that phrase, sons of God. I want to clarify something, all right? There's a difference between the son of God and sons of God. Jesus is the only one-of-a-kind son of God who was with God and is God and has always been. We've already seen Paul talk about that. But there are, small s, sons of God, divine beings. You know, sometimes we use this biblical word called Elohim. 
You say, well, isn't Elohim one of the names for God? Yes, it is. But Elohim is also a name that is frequently used for any of the heavenly beings that God has actually created. So God is the Elohim of Elohims. So you can think of it as capital Elohim, and then there are the Elohims, the lesser gods. All right? The reason I wanted to bring that up is because the Bible has some very interesting things to say about these lesser sons of God, these Elohim. We need to kind of take a look at that because it plays into this whole issue of spiritual warfare. I want to take you to a psalm, another peculiar passage, all right? Psalm 82. And there's some controversy over the meaning of the sons of God here. Some scholars say, oh, it's referring to the, the, the men, the judges of Israel. But you really have to do some gymnastics to come out with that interpretation. And some of the Bibles translate it that way. But it's raw and most honest open translation. Even the Dead Sea Scrolls and the best manuscripts support is this idea of actual beings. Now that's important because listen to what it says. It says God has taken his place in the divine council. So God has a divine council. He has a heavenly staff. Is it because he needs one? Absolutely not. It's just how he chooses to work. Does God need you and me? Absolutely not. But he chooses to have us partner with him in creation. It says, in the midst of the gods, okay, so look, God, capital L, Elohim, in the midst of the gods, small e, right, lesser gods, the little Elohim, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? I said, you are gods, Elohim, some uh, sons of the most high God, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, we'll interpret that a little bit later. But just so you know, I'm not isolating one verse. Let's go to another passage of Scripture, again in the Psalms, Psalm 89. Look what it says here. And I keep getting my yellow marks. It says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of what? The holy ones, those Elohim, the divine council. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, like Yahweh? One of the ways that God revealed himself to his people. A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. All right? That is the most raw and proper interpretation. It's not referring to Israel. It's not referring to any people. It's referring to these beings that evidently had great uh, power and great presence with God. Now, they're involved in some very strange things. If you want to read some peculiar stories, check out on your own later on 1 Kings chapter 22 and Daniel chapter 4 where they're called the Watchers. And just see how they are active in terms of the heavenly realm and and working with God, so to speak, all right? So what we've done is we focus quite a bit on the heavenly realm. Let's now focus on the earthly realm. And when we think about that, I think about God creating humankind. He begins with Adam. And of course, I can't help myself. I do have to add just a little bit of uh, artwork to that, all right? God creates Adam out of the dust of the ground. I'm not sure the Bible Project appreciates that, all right? They, God creates Adam out of the dust of the ground, and out of Adam's side, God creates the woman, the female. 
And you know, as you look at that passage of Scripture, God literally breathes into that muddy mold, the breath of God, the breath of life, and he comes to life. This is an interesting passage there in Genesis chapter 1, peculiar. Look what it says. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And what does it mean when it says, God said, let us, let us. I mean, it's God, you know, one of the ways of looking at it is saying that, well, God's talking the Trinity. But is, does God, like, call Jesus and the Holy Spirit to come over and they sit down around a conference table and he says, I've got a great idea, let's make, let's make a human being. And I'll do this part, and Jesus, you do that part, and Holy Spirit, you do that part. Of course not. That's absurd, right? I mean, God is one, three distinct personalities, but one divine essence. He doesn't have to tell himself what he's going to do. He knows what he's going to do. I want to suggest to you that God's not talking to himself. He's not talking to the Trinity, but he's talking to those sons of God. He's saying, let us make. You say, Pastor Dale, it sounds like heresy. Are you suggesting that those, those, those uh, divine beings made us? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. When God says, let us, I think it's very much like me saying, hey, to my family, let us, let us make some ice cream. It's my idea. I've got the ice cream maker. I'm going to make the ice cream, and I'm going to give it for you to enjoy. So when God says, let us make, it's as though God is saying, look, I'm going to do this, and I want you to watch, and I want you to be in awe of what I do out of the dirt of the ground. Now, I think that's probably the right way to look at that, but, you know, if you disagree with me, you see it differently, you're more than happy to do that. But it lends, I think, to understanding the big picture that we're going to move into in just a moment. Let's talk about being made out of the ground and God breathing life into us. When God created human beings, he created them to be his imagers, Michael Heiser says, and I think that's absolutely right. We are God's imagers. What does it mean that we are God's imagers? Well, that has nothing to do with our ability. It has to do with the status that God gives to us. And the status is God calls us, unlike any other creature on earth, to be in relationship with himself. God calls us to partner with him in the domestication of the entire world earth. What a special relationship. But we're very different than the angelic beings, the divine beings. For instance, we read this in Psalm 8. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him. Now, think about this. He's looking up at the sky. For the ancients, when they looked up at the sky, they saw the sun, the moon, the stars. They didn't just think about the physical planets, the physical uh, um, uh, stellar objects that were there in the cosmos. They thought about the, the beings, the supernatural beings that God created. So in light of that, the psalmist is saying, you know, what is man compared to them? What is man that you are, that you are mindful of, that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him, nonetheless, with glory and honor. Now let me ask you a question. Are you a little jealous? Do you wish you had been created one of the spiritual beings rather than an earthly being? I hope you're not because you and I have a pretty special relationship with God. 
we are very precious to him. Hebrews picks this up in chapter 2. Look what it says using the psalm. It says, what we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. Now think about that. God must think an awful lot about you and me, that God would be willing to put on skin and flesh and become like us less than the angels, so to speak, in terms of being confined and becoming like a human being. He says, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Wow. God loves you. God loves me enough that he would send his son who put on human flesh and became like us to die for us, to rise again and conquer death, and to invite us back into relationship with the Father and call us his brother and his sister and share his eternal inheritance with us. That is so awesome. But it begs the question, what happened? Why did God have to come and do that for you and for me? Well, that takes us back to the Garden Mountain of Eden. You see, not all of the sons of God, evidently, were thrilled and excited about what God did when he created the universe, and in particular, when he created humanity. There was one who rebelled against God and tried to lead a coup against God. We know him as Satan. We know of him as the devil. We know of him as the serpent, as the dragon, as Lucifer, as, you know, many different descriptions in the Bible. Well, he comes to Eden, and he comes to the woman and to the man, and he deceives them into joining him in the rebellion. Now, in Genesis, he's referred to as a serpent. And if you want to take that as literal, that is fine. I'm inclined more and more as I study this to think that, that it's symbolic for Satan's glorious presence, which we read earlier in Ezekiel. And I think that the woman and the man were used to seeing these sons of God, these other beings, from what we read in Genesis and other passages of Scripture. Remember, it's the intersection of heaven and earth. It is where God's headquarters is. Because the woman is not surprised to have this conversation. You say, well, why is he called a serpent then? Because the subtlety of the serpent, the smoothness of the serpent, the venom of the serpent, the sneakiness of the serpent, the shrewdness of the serpent. I mean, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul calls him a serpent. And we know he's talking about the devil. And in Revelation chapter 12, John calls him the great dragon. And we know he's talking about the devil. So I take a symbolic of, of this glorious, beautiful presence that we read about in Ezekiel coming and engaging the woman, the man. We think about that symbolically. In essence, what he's saying to them is, you could be Elohim too. Remember what I asked you earlier? 
Do you wish you had been created one of those spiritual beings? He says, you could be an Elohim. In fact, you could be more than just small E Elohim. You can be big E Elohim. Stop listening to God. Stop depending on him to take care of what is good and evil. You look to yourself. You become the own source of your own knowledge of good and evil. You define what is good and what is evil. He's playing them into his hands, just like he placed people into his hands today. And they listen, and they rebelled against God. And immediately, they were all rejected and sent into the shadowlands outside the garden, the man, the woman, and the serpent. That takes us to that, another peculiar passage of Scripture, the downfall of that beautiful creature that we know of as the devil. Isaiah chapter 14 is a polemic against the prince of Babylon. Again, filled with pride and evil. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah takes us into a different sphere. He begins to talk about a different being, powerful being, and the fall of that being. And he's talking about the fall of the devil. Listen to what he says in that passage. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Remember the garden mountain? Above the stars of God, above the divine council, I'm going to take over. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, the serpent who crawls on his belly. You are brought down to Sheol, to the farthest reaches of the pit. You know, we're going to talk more about that next weekend, of how Satan tried to ascend to the heights. Jesus, for the love of your soul, descended to the depths so that he could bring us to the heights while the serpent was sent to the depths. We'll talk more about that next weekend when we actually get there. Say, well, what about, what about the others that rebelled with Satan? Yep, we know there were many others in the angelic beings, the divine beings that rebelled against God and joined Satan. How they did it, when they did it, how many did it, how long a period of time that this was going on, I don't know. But, you know, if you want to, you can read passages like 2 Peter chapter 2 or Jude chapter 1, particularly verses 5 to 7. And it talks a little bit more about it, but it doesn't give us a lot of details, so we have to be really careful with that. But there was an all-out rebellion. Yet God, in His grace, because He loved the human creatures so much, who've been made a little lower, promised them in Genesis chapter 3 that there would be a way back someday, that one would come who would stomp on the head of that serpent, the devil. And he would die for our sins and he would make a way back for humanity into the garden of God's presence. But in the meantime, humanity must obey God, must listen to God, must honor God, must make sacrifices until they die and wait for that one to come who will then liberate them to be able to join him in paradise. But human kind does not listen and obey God. Quickly, Cain kills Abel. It just goes downhill. 
really fast. If you get to Genesis chapter 6, there's one righteous man left. His name is Noah. And so God tells Noah to build an ark. It takes him 120 years to build it, gather his family together. God sends certain animals into the ark. God sends a flood to drown out all the evil. Finally, the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat. Noah gets out with his family, and it's like a new, fresh beginning. But Noah can't keep the cheese on his cracker. He gets drunk out of his mind, and one of his sons commits a horrendous, horrific sin, and it's downhill right away. Evil just takes over again. We speed ahead to Genesis chapter 11, and you have all the humanity, because everybody's still a big family, right? like one nation speaking one language, they come onto the plains of Shinar to build a ziggurat or what we think of as the Tower of Babel. Well, what is the, what is the Tower of Babel? Look what it says in Genesis chapter 11. It says, then they say, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower, watch this, that reaches into the sky. What does that remind us of? Eden. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. And they were led by a man named Nimrod, whose name probably means rebellious one. So let's put it in a picture form. They're going to build their own mountain garden into the sky. They are going to create their own Eden, their own world, ruled by their own wisdom, their own sense of what is right and what is wrong, knowledge of good and knowledge of evil. And God sees this and it says that God comes down and he confuses their language. And as a result of that, they are scattered. They are scattered by language across the known world at that time. And you think it's the end of the story. But then you run into some more really peculiar verses. And you get some insight what happened here in the spiritual realm. Deuteronomy chapter 32 Look what it says. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the what? Of the sons of God. And that cannot refer to Israel because Israel is not a nation yet. It's not even mentioned in the table of nations. The Dead Sea Scrolls and other texts make it clear. These are those supernatural beings. So when God scatters the people and they divide up into their language groups, they come under these sons of God. These lesser Elohim become their gods. But the Lord's portion, watch this, but the Lord's portion, it's as though God is saying, now I'm going to reach in here and I'm going to take a portion for myself. Abraham and his descendants. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage, and he's going to give them their own land. But look, he's going to use them to reach back out to those nations, to provide a way back in to relationship with himself. Pulling the curtain back, watch this. We come back to Psalm 82. I said we'd explain it. Look what it says. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Why? They've rebelled. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Those nations that have scattered. You are God, sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so I don't think he's talking about human beings here. I don't think he's talking about Israelites or the judges in Israel. 
I think he's saying you, right? You had a responsibility. You shirked your responsibility. You have, like the sinful human beings, you, like Lucifer, you have led them into rebellion. Now watch this. Let's go to another passage in Deuteronomy, peculiar passage of Scripture. And beware, God says, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. He's talking to his portion. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, remember symbolizing the divine beings, the heavenly beings, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you, we read about that, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, which, by the way, had its gods, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, he says, they, those pagan nations, sacrificed to demons. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that idols, the wood, the metal, the stone, they're, they're just... They're just objects, but behind them are the demons that they represent. He says, they sacrificed demons that were no gods to gods they had never known, to new gods they had come, uh, that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Now he's saying, how dare you go and join those nations and worship those gods? Remember, the whole time that God wanted to bless and use Israel, they were constantly being tempted by the nations around them to intermarry and to embrace and to worship their gods, demons, the rebels against God himself. And that brings us then to our key verse for our series, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we are not fighting, Paul says, you and I, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places, which have aligned themselves with rebellious and evil humankind to go against God and to go against God's people which includes you and me, who have been grafted into God's family through the blood and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Now, you may have heard me say some things that were new to you. You may even disagree with some of the things that I, I shared and the way I interpreted them. That's fine, but I hope you can arrive at the big picture, folks. And the big picture is we live in a universe with beings, human and supernatural, that are at war with God. And they're at war with anybody who sides with God. But the good news is this. We may be under attack, but we are not defeated. Now you may be wondering to yourself, is this really true? Is this really true? real? Are we like brushing up against these forces of darkness? Are they what's behind so much of what's happening in our world today and the chaos that we're seeing around the world? 
And I'm going to answer that question for you next weekend. So you don't want to miss. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with a, a hymn that's really well known. A mighty fortress is our God. It was written by Martin Luther who had his own battles with the devil and felt the devil pushing against him as he brought reform to the church. You could be thankful. I'm not going to sing it to you, but I do want to read the words to you because they're very powerful and I hope to be an encouragement to you. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still, Luther writes, our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and he's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man, Jesus. On our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled, remember everything we just read, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that little word is the word of God in flesh, Jesus Christ, and the words of Scripture. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that though there is a very strange and dark world around us, we have the light of Christ. We have the hope of victory. Even when we are under attack, we are not defeated. So Lord, as we move through the series, as we shine a light in the dark corners and expose the evil one, God, I pray that you give us strength and courage. And we would rise up to be victors. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you.